Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? Uh, Lauren Spiegelmeyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've been calling you a brain expert. That's like how I sold you. How do you identify yourself? How do you define your work? Uh, good question. There, there are a couple different buckets. I mean, brain is is like underlying everything I do and I teach. So that, that's probably pretty accurate. Um, I do a lot with like a lot of coaching. So a lot of parent education coaching around, I say stress trauma in the brain. So anything that falls under the umbrellas of stress trauma or the brain, my area, my love. Cool. Um, I know, okay. I know in my work as a teacher, the minute that I tell lay people, which is anybody who's not an educator, what I do, I start to hear the same misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Oh, school should do this. Oh, this is just- I'm I'm very interested when you tell people what you do or what you're studying or what your work is, what are a few high-flying misconceptions that you hear or just kind of cliches that that you hear that you think need some some airing out? Great question. Uh, the it, so in those stress trauma and the brain buckets, like all of it is really ultimately to like address behavior, like human behavior and behavior responses. And when people bring me into schools or bring me into classrooms or bring me into homes, it's usually like there's this behavior and it could be like aggression or it could be anxiety, you know, whatever end of the spectrum it is, it's, it's human behavior. And I think one of the, one of the things I really struggle with in the educational system is this idea of like kids have control over their behavior. Many and most behaviors are an impulsive, unconscious, subconscious, even biological response. And it's rare that that young kids, and I say young kids, like anyone under 30, has the ability to control their biological system enough to control their behavior. So behaviors are communicating something and they don't happen for no reason. And they are not as controllable as we think. We can work on them to, to make them more uh, manageable, but it doesn't come very naturally. So that's, that's a big one. And two, I think what I'm finding is like, everyone is searching for this like magic singular program that, that fixes these problems. Like the one program or the one thing or the one intervention. And I personally don't believe that's ever going to be the case. Like with any approach you that that's sustainable and successful, I think you need a, like a holistic wraparound approach. So it's not just going to be this one psychological strategy. It's not just going to be this one food or nutrition or exercise mood, whatever. It, it's going to have to be a little bit of each. 
and it's going to have to be a little bit more individualized too, because everyone's background, circumstances, traumas, stressors, genealogy, it's so different. So I don't know that we'll ever have a program that's like, yeah, this is the program you buy and you implement and it's going to fix all the problems. Okay. So both of those bring up super good questions for me. So the first would be, I think what I hear you saying is young people have much less control over themselves than we would like to believe or that just we we do believe. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we think that about like infants and toddlers uh, and even like primary school. But then we get to like intermediate and middle high. We're like, they should be able to, you know, and I was like, no, no. Especially because, you know, you have these like crazy rapid like periods of brain growth and, you know, one's going to happen around like six, seven, and then you've got another one, like early teens. So they're, they're like stuff going on in their head is just wild. Like if you could see scans and see what's going on, like it makes sense why they're so impulsive and they're, they're not thinking rationally and logically. So teens, just as much as toddlers struggle to manage and control their behaviors. So I've worked with kids kind of all ages, like, you know, K up to I'm working with high school students right now. I could imagine an ideal, perfect, wonderful school where the first hour of the day is all about social emotional regulation. And, you know, I teach in the real world. So at the end of the day, I do have students and like in my building, we do have students who display behaviors that just do not mesh with an academic environment, right? Whether that be disrespecting their teachers, you know, screaming and shouting in the hallways, fighting with each other, physical aggression, disrupting the class, things like that. So where do you think in the real world, given like every teacher doesn't have the time or even the expertise to devote to these higher level skills, I guess, what, what does discipline in a school system look like to you? And what, I guess, what expectations should we be holding young people to? That's a good question. And a tough one because I did teach in the classroom for many years and, and now I'm, I'm doing more coaching than I am teaching, but I do know what it's like to have a classroom of 23, five and six year olds with no additional adult support and know how hard it is to like try and adhere to the, the standards and the curriculum and manage behavior and meet, you know, the expectations of your team and, and, and parents and all this stuff. And it's hard and we should not and cannot expect teachers to do all of those things and teach social, emotional and, you know, all these different things, but we could share different things and educate our educators about different practices and ways to, to integrate into their already planned routines and instruction and days to, to improve some of these things. Like it doesn't need to be a fully separate program. It can be, you know, a lot of the work at the behavior hub is how do we take this information that we have that's really helpful works and integrate it into what we're already doing. It's not a separate program. It's not something to add to your plate. It's just something that you, you integrate seamlessly into what you're already doing. So trying to do that. And then I think there does become a level at which it, it's, it needs more support than the teacher can provide. So maybe that's a guidance counselor, maybe that's a psychologist, or maybe that's the school bringing in a, a completely external team to meet these needs or address these needs or having at least like resources to refer families to, to get this additional support. Cause, cause there are kids that 
are in these traumatic situations or chronically stressed or whatever. And these little tiny doses of, of support here and there in the classroom, there's just not, it's, it's not gonna be fast enough. It's not gonna be quick enough. They're gonna keep losing progress and academic retainment, all of this stuff. We need, we need a, like a more intensive program. And sorry, did you want to keep? No, I was just thinking about it too. The second part of that was like <clears> discipline. <throat> like discipline is such an interesting one because I struggle with discipline so much. When I when I do a lot of like coaching with families, we talk about more of like education over discipline. Because again, if you go back to that, like behaviors aren't necessarily a choice. Is it fair mm-hmm. to discipline someone for something they've done because they didn't necessarily consciously choose it? Yet, is it okay to just let an extreme behavior go? So wh- where's the line of like? Well, they need a consequence or they need, you know, punishment or discipline. And, and, and what does it look like? What is the difference between consequence, punishment, and di- discipline? Yeah. And that's, yeah, I think that's where a lot of teachers struggle. So my school recently went full force with trauma-informed instruction, um, restorative discipline, things like that. And I work in one of these, um, what's the word for it? high expectations charters, Mm -hmm. the ones that were really, really famous for demerit cards and, you know, tuck your shirt in, put your tie on, all that. It was a huge shift. And what I'm noticing is you, you have a team of teachers who don't really understand restorative practices, which I don't blame us. Like we just weren't trained for it. And these aren't things that you learn in a 90 minute session, right? But what I'm noticing is like a, a vacuum where there's just nothing in, in the way the teachers would consider it. There's really nothing happening discipline wise. We understand to an extent that traditional discipline totally sucks, mm-hmm. but we also understand that nothing's happening and the school is falling apart because of that. So do you have like, I don't know, do you have opinions on just the traditional way that that education looked for years and years and years and the way it might be shifting and like kind of the holes that are that are appearing there yeah it's a conversation i'm having very openly with a lot of educators and people in the educational realm of like you know what has discipline and punishment and consequences look like in the past what does it currently look like and how does it need to shift Uh, And it's hard to answer because there isn't a simple or easy solution. Like we we have resorted a lot and still many programs do to suspension, expulsion. And then it's like, well, what does that teach? What does that change moving forward? Yet, where is the time and the resources and the funding to educate teachers, schools, programs about the, the preventative practices that will keep us from even getting there and how, how long is it going to take even to, to to educate on that implement and then see the slowing of the behaviors or you know less of the suspension expulsion um it's a tough one uh my focus is more on the preventative nature so what can we do what can we put in place how can we coach schools to put these micro practices in place so less and less and less of the behaviors are happening. And I'm always going back to like, if we're using some type of consequence punishment, what is it teaching? And if it's not teaching something, then why are we using it? Like, what is the true purpose of this? What is the, the outcome of this? And if it's, if, if it's not good or positive or helpful, 
then I don't know why we're using it. And that means that we need to slow down a bit and come together and figure out a better solution. Have you seen this on a large scale, not just maybe with one teacher in one classroom, but in a school building, have you seen any exemplars where you say like, this is actually going really, really, really well. And here are the kind of elements that led to that. Uh, <laughs> it's hard because you've got, you know, in any school system, you've got so many different teachers with so many different personalities and so many different belief systems. And, and, and you always have, maybe not always, but you frequently have outliers who just are not open to some of the new things and, or trying something new or change in general. So the, the schools or the programs where I've seen it work the best have really starting with administration, but a school culture that is just so open and so um, supportive that there's much better buy-in. There's much more consistent use of the strategies because the admin and the culture is really supportive of, of everything and the struggles. And when things aren't going well, they are available to talk through what, what to do and how to respond. So yes, if, if the, school coach, the school culture is overwhelmingly supportive and positive. If not, buy-in's really tough. And if you don't have buy-in, it crashes and burns pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, shifting to potentially more fun conversations, we'll see. We got a lot of questions, which I found really, really interesting regarding intrinsic motivation just towards academic or any other type of success in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And we've all had those students who just have that in them. It's just kind mm -hmm. of innate. Yeah. What can we do as educators to increase intrinsic motivation in those less motivated students? Um, there's a book that kind of relates to this and I actually haven't finished it yet. Um, it's a little bit hard to get to the first couple of chapters because it's so scientific, but it's, um, I think it's called The Dandelion and the Orchid. I can't remember who the author is. It's a yellow book with like pink print, but um, it ties to this particular question perfectly because it, it talks about a dandelion like thriving through anything, like can survive everything. An orchid needs like the most perfect temperature, sunlight, water to, to grow and to thrive. And basically it, it's, it, what it comes down to is like the kids that are more resilient, the dandelions, and then your orchids who are a lot more sensitive and struggle. And what do we do? And why are people this way? And can we basically teach resiliency? Can we teach grit? Can we teach intrinsic motivation? And ultimately, again, I didn't finish the whole book, but the answer is yes. Um, but some of us are born with genetic predispositions to be a lot more resilient and to have a lot more intrinsic motivation. So it becomes easy for those people to, to utilize those skills when we're teaching or trying to influence the behavior and the development of those in, in, in the students and the people that don't naturally have those predisposition genes. It's, it's harder, it takes longer, but it can develop, it can be developed in a supportive environment. Do we find... And I don't know if you know this, the answer to this, if I take my, you know, my student who's really, really motivated in a reading and writing situation, mm -hmm. 
you know, I say five paragraphs and, the, you know, this student's five paragraphs are flawless and she has her periods in the right place and grammar and all of that. If I took that same student into an outdoor education class and say, hey, everybody's job today is to grow an orchid. And then the same students, you know, to a woodworking class. Would my motivated students be motivated throughout? Or do you think I see different kids kind of popping up with, with um, motivation in different areas? Oh, my, my guess is that motivation would change because especially because like, this goes into like, I think some things we're gonna talk about in a bit, but with like social media and comparison and perfectionism and self-esteem being all issues right now, especially with the teen group, I think that someone who's maybe a strong reader, writer, literacy person, you put them in like an outdoor world and, and maybe not, maybe that, that person also loves the outdoor world, but if they're not confident, safe, have high self-esteem in that area and they're a perfectionist, they may pull back for fear of failure. Mm -hmm. So I could see the, the transition in like different environments, maybe some of your more motivated kiddos or um, kids who are doing well pull back for fear of a failure for the perfectionistic tendencies they have but maybe may not uh, you'll always have some that are gonna I mean I'm I'm one of those and and maybe that's being a childhood trauma survivor and just being always in the state of of <laughs> I'm gonna figure this out I'm gonna work through this I am not gonna fail I will not let myself fail so no matter what it is whether I like it I'm motivated by it or not I'm gonna I'm gonna work through it, I'm gonna figure it out but is that for me, is that more predisposition? Is that more genes? Is that more just environmental influence of childhood trauma? Like what, what's ultimately under that? And I, this is an area that I think that we have understudied and we're trying to learn more about. I think, I think Eric Jensen talks a little bit about it too with, I mean, he's, he's the, we use him a lot for like brain content stuff, but he does a lot on poverty as well. And how does poverty in SES or yeah, SES influence all of this, but he's, he's like one person I know that studies that area, but we need more, more research on that. In terms of, um, cause it's funny, you mentioned the, the three kind of buzz uh, phrases that, that I was going to ask you about, which is grit, growth mindset, intrinsic motivation. And it seems like every educator that I speak with at this point has the kind of like overarching bullet points of those, the mm -hmm. power of yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, it looks like you're working really hard. Great job. Things like that. You know, the kind of like nuts and bolts of, yeah. of growth mindset. Does that, are we on the right, are we on the right path if we're doing that? Or are we really just kind of scraping the surface of a much deeper idea? I think in theory, the concepts are, are good. Like I think they're really valuable to have and to teach. I think that our implementation or our attempt to teach them is, is just scraping the surface. Like how do we teach grit? How do we teach resiliency, growth mindset, you know, prompt kids to be more intrinsically motivated? I think that in our already very full plates, when we think about the, the, the strategies, interventions, the things that we can do to teach those things, we, we may be like, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do like the positive reinforcement side of things. And I'll just, you know, use the same comment with everyone. And 
it's such a process, like with any behavior change or any kind of internal chemical <laughs> makeup change, it's, it takes so much time and influence. Like self-development work is not, I mean, it's something you do your whole life. Trauma work, it's something you do your whole life. So it's just like, I don't know that you ever really reach a point where like, yeah, I'm like self-developed or like, yeah, I've healed from all of my, my traumas. So uh, that's a hard one. Um, I think such a huge one now too, because, because of the influence of social media and because of the mental health state of the population overall, but especially kids in schools, especially teens, it's something that we really need to dig into deeper, but how, again, do we do that? with the time limit that we have and the expertise and the training and the education, the funding, all of those things. Um, I don't think we're doing a great job of hitting those, those areas. There are some schools that do, but then those other, those are the same schools that maybe like, okay, that's their focus. Yeah. They're not doing as well as another school that's focusing on this or focusing on that. And when you focus on 10 different things, they only each grow a little bit instead of one growing exponentially. If you have a, for, in terms of just locus of control, if you have a teacher who's really, really dedicated to this and wants this in their students, mm -hmm. but doesn't work in the most supportive building, mm -hmm. or just doesn't, you know, have the, the luxury of time to do this as well as it could be done. Huh. Do you have any, when you encounter teachers like that, do you have advice? Do you have resources? Where do you kind of point them in that situation? Yeah, and you, you always have that person. Like there, there are always those people in any school. And I love those people because they're like me. We're like, I want to research it all. I want to learn it all. I want to implement it all. And then like understand it and dissect it. Uh, yeah, I really, I really appreciate Ellen Sandsetter's like work and research. I don't know if you're familiar with, with her, but she yeah. talks um, about these like, I think she calls them like categories of risky play. Um, so these like, I don't know, they're like five or seven or 10 different areas where in America, anyhow, we have kind of pulled back on exposing kids to these things like fire, getting lost in the woods. Um, I think even like rough and tumble play, like here's a perfect example. This is like 10 or 12 years ago. I was teaching kindergarten. We had a playground and it was like a, a smaller kids playground. Like it was built for like primary school students. We were not allowed to let the kids use the monkey bars <laughs> because of their like fear of getting hurt and falling. And I was like, this is great. Like th these aren't even like high monkey bars. They're not like crazy older kid monkey bars. They're just little kid monkey bars. Why, why can't they use the monkey bars? So like partway through the year, I remember a kid wanted to use the monkey bars. I'm like, yeah, we're like, I may get in trouble for this, but who cares? We're using the monkey bars. So all these kids like want to come up to these monkey bars. They, they all like freeze. They all get to the, like, they, they won't even like grab the first bar. They're like fearful of taking a leap off the edge to, to grab even the first bar. Um, so like this extreme fear of failure because we've protected them so much. Uh, and eventually what, what transpired from that was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to support you. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to catch you. I'll, I'll help you get to the first bar, but you got to reach, you got to go. And look, when you fall, it's just rubber down. It's soft. Like it, it's, it'll catch you. So, you know, the first kid went, fell. <laughs> <laughs> the next one goes, like, they, they all fall, but it's fine because they all watch each other fall. And then, you know, eventually a kid makes a cross and, you know, one or two cry, but then we, you know, I'm there to like coach and, and you know, 
support them. So ultimately it, it goes back to like her work of really exposing kids to these like five, seven areas of riskiness. And by doing so you build resilience and you build grit. And I, I love some of these things, but we, we had outlawed most of these things in schools. I mean, rough and tumble play, um, dangerous elements. I mean, we, we've even removed like woodshop classes a lot of time, too dangerous. Like can't use saws, can't cut things like too many injuries, home act, like too many kids are blowing food up and getting burned. <laughs> like these things are so important yeah. uh, for kids to learn these skills and, and ways that also take some of the pressure off teachers to teach them. So the word grit was for lack of, like it was basically invented in the context that we use it. And when did, when did Duckworth write her book? Maybe 2010, mm, yeah, 2005. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like the exact time when we started using the word grit and kind of exemplifying like like really holding up that specific this specific way of of thinking about kids was potentially the same time that we de-grittyized our kids without knowing it yeah i'm trying to remember what i read i was reading about this because i think you asked me like are there any areas you're geeking out right now i'm like yeah definitely um about to have my first child so i was digging into like these parenting texts and it was just accidental that I dug into parenting texts that really aligned so well to my work and my, my research. So basically studying ancient parenting cultures and what they do differently and European parenting cultures and what they do differently than the US. I got deep into it and I was like, oh, wow. And trying, excuse me, to understand why kids in other countries, why kids in more ancient cultures are raised with naturally more grit, more intrinsic motivation, more growth mindset, all these things. Um, I'm trying to remember what exactly a lot of these texts said, because it was, it was similar about like American culture and raising kids and parenting kids and educating kids about, you know, we, we have these trends we want to develop like grit that came out, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And Ironically, at the same time, we seem to be raising kids that are the exact opposite of the development of that. So, okay, similarly, I feel that I feel that we are the most um, aware gener. Okay, the, like this generation of parents, let's say millennial parents, or maybe mm -hmm. even Gen X parents, mm -hmm. are super aware of trauma. PTSD, anxiety, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. And I wonder at times, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, I wonder at times if we are, this generation is over-diagnosing children. Mm -hmm. So like every kid's nervous the day before kindergarten, every kid's nervous the day before ninth grade, but now we know the word anxiety, we know the feeling of anxiety, and mm -hmm. we want to say, you know what, my kid's feeling anxiety. Yeah. And that's not okay. Nervous is okay. Anxiety is bad. Right. So do you, do you think we're over diagnosing children and related a question that a lot of participants had are children starting to over diagnose themselves? Yes. And no, yes, I definitely think we're over diagnosing. And I think we are over diagnosing in an attempt to feel relief from a problem by having a like solution, or at least like Oh, if it's anxiety, then, then, you know, the, the therapist or the person can tell me the 10 things to do for anxiety and I can heal my child. So it's like relief. Like sometimes like when parents get like autism diagnoses with their kids, there's like the acceptance and the, the, the grief that they go through. But then there's also like alleviation of like, Oh, okay. Okay. At least we have an answer. Now we can put a path 
in place and we can get moving and we can fix this problem or we can work to address this. So the, I think that it, it feels like a solution to the problem. So yes, I think we're overdiagnosing. And to go back to like studying of like European cultures and ancient cultures, one of the big things, and this is like a whole nother tangent we could go off onto. The reality is I think we are having also a lot more problems in the United States with anxiety and depression and all of these things. And I, there's an overdiagnosing of it, yes. And I think a lot of it has to do with like our nutrition and our food and our food industry and the way that we make food, grow food, create food, like artificial chemicals, hormones, synthetic GMOs, like all, we, we more than any other country use a lot of that. And, and part of it is we are so big. If we don't use some of those things, we probably will not produce enough food for everyone here. And there's a lot of research out right now on how does that impact your mood system, your brain development, your regulation, like, and, and we're seeing a lot of correlation between like these different foods, these allergens are causing anxiety or depression or all these things. So I think we're seeing more of that in the United States because we have more exposure to these synthetic and artificial chemicals in our food, something we eat every day. So naturally over time, it's going to have more influence on us. I mean, the food industry really started changing in like the seventies, but really, really changed in like the nineties. Mm-hmm. And think about, you know, in the last 30 years, how much we've increased diagnoses with anxiety, depression, autism, like all these things around the same time that the food industry really, really changed. When, so from an educator standpoint, if a student says, for example, I didn't do my work this week, I was really lazy and I was playing Fortnite. A teacher knows how to respond to that. When a student says, I didn't do my work all week, I was suffering from anxiety and depression. A teacher obviously wants to feel differently about that. Sure. But if it's happening with a third of their kids, let's say, or if it's happening with the specific student every single week, a teacher starts to wonder kind of what their role is in that discussion or in that, the empathy that they might want to show to a student. Mm-hmm. What... What's your opinion on this or what advice might you have? I guess I'm like looking for a trend too. Like, is it, does this come up like one time or is this like multiple times? Because then it gives me like some type of feeling for like how serious of an issue is this? Like if it's like one time, okay, maybe it's just like a a bout of anxiety or depression, or maybe it's an excuse, who knows? Um, But if it's recurring and it's frequent, then I'm like, okay, this this is maybe a more serious problem. and maybe the child who was up playing Fortnite all night played Fortnite all night because they were anxious or depressed and they're trying to avoid dealing with their emotions too. So there's that too. It's like, what's underneath all of these behaviors mm-hmm. and, and things? Um, so I guess I'm, I'm like, I'll kind of collect a little bit more data first to determine like how serious this is an issue. And if it's more mild, then I might be able to address it and like provide some support and ask like, I, I, and this is hard because we're, our time is limited, but like we don't often have open dialogue with our kids. Like, we, we try to solve their problems, but we don't talk to them to like figure out what's really going on or what they really need. And, and maybe they don't know what they need, but maybe they haven't been asked to think about what they need either. So they haven't been given the space to, to really consider. Um, but I'm trying to determine, can I help them with a little bit of support or time or energy here or there, or do I need to escalate this to 
bigger, higher resources to get more consistent ongoing support. Cause I can't be that consistent ongoing support if I'm also the person running the classroom. So I'm making that determination based on the data I gather about which direction I need to go. And it's kind of similarly on the same vein, we've been as educators, we've been working really hard to be patient with students in this yes. post slash during COVID world. Yeah. And, you know, the empathy we had throughout this whole school year that just ended mm -hmm. of, oh, you know what, these ninth graders are actually kind of seventh graders because that's the last time they were in a school building, right? That empathy is kind of waning. I can feel it both from administrators yep. and just in the classroom. Yep. And a lot of, you hear more and more people saying, how long are we going to let COVID be the excuse? How long is this thing going to affect us? Yeah. So I guess my first question is, is COVID, is the fact that kids weren't in school for a year, 18 months, is that still impacting them? Will it be in two years? Will it be in five years? Will it be in 50 years? What, you know, what should we, how should we be going into this next school year, I guess, what mindset? Yeah, it's tough because like part, part of our site doesn't know the answer to that. Like we, we've had, you know, <laughs> diseases, illnesses, pop up, affect society, whatever. Um, this one's a little bit different. And I don't know that we can really fully predict how long it's gonna impact us, what the last two years has really done to our systems. I mean, we're, we're researching it now, but we can only predict so much, but ah, it's another gray line. like. We need to still hold empathy and because because we don't know what systems are like, we don't know what people are going through. And at the same time, we still need to like build resiliency to this because otherwise we'll just remain in this limbo state of like not making the progress we desire we need. Um, and then, you know, do we change our expectations? How much do we change our expectations? Do they change for, you know, they need probably change for each child. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, and I think, I think part of us as educators are having less empathy because we, we are burnt out and we've been burnt out long before the pandemic. The pandemic just magnified the burnout and it's hard to have empathy and understanding when you are so emotionally and physically and mentally burnt out yourself. So I think the, the one big shift that's gonna to need to happen this year, and this, this was like a lot of my push even last year is like most of like the coaching, the programs are training teachers how to teach and coach and work with students. I think we're gonna have to back it up to like, how do we support and coach and teach educators to like take care of themselves, take care of their mental health, like get the burnout under control because it, the, the the working with students part is like beyond where we're even at we need to go back to like helping these people get grounded and stabilized and then we can go back to teaching them how to work best with kids um it's so hard I thought this year would be a big improvement and I'm like wow everyone's ending the year so drained mm -hmm. so depleted and I didn't expect that going into the school year it makes it really hard for me to like predict and think about well, what's next school year going to be like because this year was much different than I had anticipated so ultimately I don't I don't think we can like 
make up that time or like work double speed, double time, at least not yet. Um, there's a lot of weight, emotional, energetic weight from the last two years that I don't know that you can just kind of bypass and work through in a matter of a couple of months or a year to solve the problem, to get back to where we were. Like systems are broken and maybe for good reason and they need to shift and change and shape and develop. So I, we're not, I don't think we're ever gonna go back to like the way things were or the normal. It just, it's gotta look different. And I don't think we know what that's gonna look like yet. Still evolving. I'm actually really glad you brought up teacher self-care as teacher self-regulation. So I was just talking to a teacher yesterday. So, okay, within teachers, we're calling it the big quit or the big resignation or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the less told story is that administrators are leaving left and right. Mm -hmm. Superintendents, principals, assistant principals. Um, so much of what guides a teacher's day-to-day -day work, expectations of work, et cetera. And not only that, but teachers forever have been dealing with brand new systems every year, every couple of years. We're using this software, this kind of blended learning, this grading platform, et cetera. So there's actually a lot of instability. Just take the kids out of the building. There's mm -hmm. a lot of instability for teachers in terms of what their day-to-day, year-to-year work looks like. Do you have any suggestions or any, just any thoughts about how teachers can kind of keep themselves regulated, not with the kids, but just with the, the you know, changing workplace that they're experiencing? Yeah, this is like, this is like a whole new program I spent all of last summer developing at the behavior of I was like, all right, not coaching on trauma and SEL this year for schools. I am pushing like stress management, self-care, mental health coaching for teachers. So I'm going to get schools to buy in to me coming in and coaching their teachers on how to basically do these things. And it hasn't, it's, it's been received well once I can get like administration buy-in or district buy-in or, you know, program buy-in, but I think programs, schools still don't quite think that that is top priority right now, but um, it goes back to that, like developing <laughs> resiliency and it's not something that I can come in. I can do one three hour session and be like, that's what you need. You got it. Like take it, go with it, run with it. It is an ongoing that like, I only propose like nine minimum nine month coaching programs, preferably like 12, even throughout the summer to like keep, you know, teachers virtually engaged with, with these practices while they're not in the building. Um, but I would say the biggest thing is slowing down enough to like check in and reflect. And in doing so, learning a little bit more about yourself, like who you are, how you function, what stresses you, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and really taking some time to learn about yourself. And, and that can be micro doses across nine, 12 months, more, longer, whatever. Um, but if you don't know how you, you tick, it's hard to recommend anything that's going to be helpful to you because it's, it's it, like our kids, it's different for everyone. So I have worked with schools, coaching teachers, where we've worked through different like meditation resources and mindfulness resources. And there are some people in that group who are like, I, I can't, I don't like that. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. And ultimately those people that maybe need that more, but they're not ready for it yet. So then it means, okay, if that's what they know about themselves, then let's shift and find something that still helps them, but it looks a little bit different. 
So I think really understanding who you are <laughs> as an individual. And, and I do that by like, I love and hate personality tests because I don't want people to be like, that's who I am. Yep. But I, but I also love that they give us some good data about ourselves. So I encourage people to do what I call like a personality profile. And there are like five or six different tests I recommend they take. And I say like, take all five or six tests. I take like five, 10 minutes each, read through the profiles pull out what resonates with you, let it sit with you for like a couple of days and like have this like personality profile of yourself and let that guide you. And not only like guide your work, guide your family, guide your habits, guide your hobbies, guide your, you know, food, exercise, movement, all those things. I'm finding that when people do that work across a period of time, they're feeling better, they're happier, they have more motivation, they have more energy, all of that stuff. And, and while I'm teaching that, we're, we're integrating like, what are, what are the other stress management and self-care practices? Are there, for folks who find meditation to not be their thing, or just the word meditation puts them off, mm-hmm. are there other practices that, <laughs> what else is out there? <laughs> yeah, for those of you listening, it's like meditation is not for me. It's like, it's probably needed more for you than, and I, I was one of those people. I'm like, oh, this sucks. Like, I hate this. Like, I cannot, my mind is going a million miles per hour all the time. And it's like, I, I can't turn it off. And when I try to turn it off, it's just worse. Um, so one, patience and grace with yourself. But two, I thought, okay, if like sitting and just not thinking doesn't work for me, is there something that's kind of close to that, but not, not quite the same? So I'm like, okay, maybe it's like I download the Insight Timer app. It's a free app, has you know upgraded paid option, but there's a lot of free content. Can I find someone on there I connect to that can like run a, a meditation that like talks me through meditation that it's not just sitting and being quiet. It's like, there's stuff going on. I'm, I'm like processing, but, but slowing down. So maybe that's like a, a scaffolded lower, um, more individualized strategy. Or for me, like, I'm like, okay, that like, kind of works, but I'm not doing a great job of like getting into a routine or a habit. So maybe it's like, okay, well, I really love nature. I really love hiking. Okay. So let me just use that. Like, let me just go on a walk every day for five minutes, or let me do a hike a couple of times a week. And, and that is, a form of meditation. It's just not um, sitting in a chair. With like... <laughs> so I think about, are there other ways to slow down your brain that are like related to meditation, maybe not meditation as we know it. And, and that worked really well for me. So I, I do more walks. I do more hiking. Um, I do some, some insight timer and, and stuff like that. So without calling out anybody specifically, somebody who I'm extremely close to and live with and am married to (laughs) is super into uh, uh, Candy Crush type games on her phone, okay? And I don't meditate. I would love to meditate, I don't. But I do things that I consider to be meditation adjacent. Gardening, bike riding, dog walking, okay? And this person who will remain nameless for the time being swears up and down that that little game that drives me crazy, that brings my anxiety way up is her form of meditation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I spend a, more time than I should thinking about, are we, <laughs> are we uplifting certain activities just because they sound meditative? Yeah. Right. And if somebody were to say like watching football is meditation, I'd be like, no, it's not. No. So 
is there a world in which really anything you enjoy that takes your mind away from work and, you know, finance and stuff like that? Is it possible that anything is meditation as long as it's just kind of mind numbing? This is going to make so many people upset. Say it. it. (laughs) No, because you could argue that with like streaming um, shows. Like, oh, I I, I I watch horror movies on Netflix for eight hours straight. That's my meditation. Yeah. And here's why I would not categorize some of those things. And even Candy Crush, I'm like, I've ever, I've never actually played it, but I, I know it. You know the idea, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so here's, here's like why meditation is helpful. Meditation is helpful because it slows down your brain. It is essentially giving your thinking brain like a rest, a relaxation. And it's like kind of also building that part of your brain. Like it's making it stronger because it's allowing it to just like slow down. And it's deactivating to the emotional parts of the brain. So things like nature, they ground you, they make you feel relaxed, slow down your brain, meditation, sitting in a chair, insight timer, um, even like the gardening, like it's the sensory components that, that Mm. like, the like ancient parts that, that slow us down. Like our focus is on one thing, things like football or candy crush or watching these shows though they might take our mind to like one place or take our mind off of all the other things, they don't necessarily slow our mind down. So like a show mm-hmm. is going to activate your, you know, you've got the, the, the sound, the volume is going to activate, activate that sensory sense. You've got the color and the moving pieces that's going to activate that. And you've got the blue light that's activating. So it's, it's like activating and, and, and keeping your brain alert and awake. It's not actually allowing it to rest same with like a candy crush because it's, it's somewhat of a game of like logic like right you have to like watch where the pieces go or like match them up yeah you have to like align the pink ones and the purple yeah. ones yeah. so although it might be like maybe it's like the repetition that f- feels good it's really probably more of like the dopamine that that is yeah. back to that like oh it feels good to like connect that match or oh it feels good to like watch this show and like be taken away or oh it feels good to like you know football and um but it's keeping our brain very active because you've got moving things, you've got sound, you've got some maybe like logic and reason and and things like, so it's keeping you activated. So the things that will help people are the things that are going to slow their brain down. It's like focusing energy in one thing or one place. That's why like, like I love Qigong. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it's like a form of like slow moving meditative martial arts. I don't like to go slow. If I can like go 100 miles per hour, like ride motorcycles, ride roller coasters, that's what feels good to me. Yet that will keep my system in like a heightened state. So what I need is the opposite of that. So I've like forced myself to love these things and be present. When Qigong is one of them. It's very slow moving, but it's still movement. So there's 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 that. But what I love about it is it it doesn't enable me to think about a thousand things and like get the dopamine high. It just brings my whole body, my system down. And after that, you know, 30, 60 minutes I've devoted to that activity, I definitely feel much better. I feel much better than I would if I were on a roller coaster. I just have to like really check in with myself and be present about how I'm feeling. So yeah, I would check your activities. Do, do they, are you saying that they're helping you because they are comfort to you and they feel good or can you really check in and be like, okay, is this actually slowing me down and kind of kind of doing the opposite of what I need I, or what I think I need because it's really the opposite that my system needs. It's not matching. 
Yeah. So <laughs> eating cotton candy feels good, but it's not good for me. Yeah, I mean, for example. Here's, here's a great example. My, my therapist brought up a week ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never knew that. I love this like heightened state. I love to move fast. Like, and I love to read research podcast. Like I love to take in information. She's like, Lauren, you got to stop taking in so much information. And like, <laughs> she's like, that's keeping your system in a heightened state. You're, you're like addicted uh-huh. to like learning. And, and she's, it, it's okay in some sense, but you're doing it all the time. Like you're going to the gym, you're listening to podcasts, you're going for a walk, you're listening to podcasts, like reading something. You're waking up in the morning. You're like, I'm just like, oh, wow. I never thought about that. Like, I thought it was a good thing. Cause I was learning, I'm developing and I am but I'm doing too much of it and I'm doing too much of it because it feels comfortable and it feels good. And I'm getting on dopamine hit and I'm, you know, so I'm like, okay, I check myself. Like feels good to me, but just because it, I, I think it feels good. It's not necessarily helping me. Okay. So it's like, okay. If I'm hearing you right, the typical brain operates at 50 miles per hour. Uh-huh. Let's say yeah. on a really crazy, awful, weird day, you're yeah. good at 75 miles per hour. Yeah. For those who are meditationally critical or not ready for meditation as others might call it. If you're bringing your brain down to 35 miles per hour, it's a decently healthy activity. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, where did I, 11 million bits of information, like sensory information is what we experience in like any one second. Our brain can handle 50, five, zero. So think about like, the, the football, the TV shows, they can't like, that's just all that sensory stimulation. You're just adding all those bits of information. It's just keeping you active, but your brain can only handle 50. So if you can do something like walk in nature or meditate, it brings you closer to that 50. It brings your whole system and your whole body down. Yeah. But we're so used to being in environments where there are 11 bits, millions of information everywhere. And that kind of feels natural and comfortable to us because we've been in it so long. Yeah. Great. Okay. We have exactly two minutes left. <laughs> I figured we wouldn't get through all this. So much to talk about. Is there, yeah, I could really do this. I think once a day for two weeks. Um, Cause I also like taking information, Lauren. Um, in the last, now we have like uh, 75 seconds left. In the last 75 seconds, is there anything I missed that you think is super interesting or important or necessary? Um, hmm. I think there are two things I, two things in a, in a book I would recommend. Um, we are biological beings first, not logical. And everything we're trying to do is so logically forward, like academics, this, that there's the, the like quote, like you must Maslow before you can bloom. So like if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs or like these, basic physiological biological needs and then you've got bloom's taxonomy which is more of your academically higher order thinking and so much of schools and even societal focuses are on bloom's taxonomy and excelling and productivity and all these things the problem is like how we were inherently built our human biology how our bodies and our brains and our systems were developed is out of human biology and we have to know that and take that into consideration first before we can access all of those higher order, logical, rational things. And, you know, I'll get a lot of pushback from schools or from teachers like, I don't have time for SEL or I don't have time for, and I was like, you don't have time to not. Like you're yeah. just going to spin your wheels trying to teach these academic concepts when you haven't addressed the biology or 
biological needs first and you're trying to teach the logical stuff and they'll never retain it because you haven't addressed the human biology first. So I'd say biological beings first, logical second. And I think in the coming year with so much still unknown from the pandemic um, and so much unknown about the future is, is really asking adults, parents, educators to focus on themselves. And it's not selfish. It's going to help everyone around you, not just your kids, not just your work, not just yourself, your family, your spouse. Um, you really got to take some time for yourself and to learn about yourself and to take care of yourself because everything else is going to not go well if you don't do that first. In the book, the, the, the one book, I'm like, what? what's the one? I talked about like these ancient cultures and parenting, but this really ties into education as well. Um, a really good one was Hunt, Gather, Parent. But I'm reading it right now. That's so crazy. So it's yeah, such a yeah. So she, it's an NPR journalist who <laughs> had a challenging three-year-old or 18-month-old or whatever, and wanted to learn more about other cultures and why we weren't, they weren't having some of the same problems as we were in America. So she basically studied three ancient cultures. I think it was the Yucatan, the Arctic, and Tanzanian parenting, child-rearing cultures, and this ties so much to education. So even if you're not a parent, it, it, it like aligns to education so well. And in reading that and working through that, I was like comparing these other cultures to, to the US and I was like, wow, that's profound. And that, the, the strategies and the, the, the things that she suggests, or basically the things that other cultures use and utilize and teach and bring kids up with, would solve so many problems in the educational and parenting system. So it was a fun read. Um, it was a quick read. It was a good read. I think it's a newer, she just released it not so long ago. So I'd highly recommend that book. Listen to it, read it, whatever. Go back and reread it. If nothing else, at the end of each chapter, she has like the strategies listed and why. So at least just bump to the end of each chapter, pull out those <laughs> strategies and don't even read the book. Cool. Um, I know it's 132. So I was going to ask you for your favorite YouTuber online resource and podcaster. Do you want me to just put it in the show notes later? Yeah. So the, the book is a fun gather parent. Um, yeah. The YouTuber, I'm not a good person to ask for that because I don't YouTube really ever. Um, no I'm not going to want my, my, my influence there. Podcaster, anything Mark Hyman. Okay. H-Y-M-A-N, Mark Hyman. He's a naturopathic doctor, but he talks a lot about how food impacts mental illness, which is really affecting a lot of our kids. So that, that's an interesting one. And then uh, an online resource. I actually was like, hmm, this one's like an, an out there one, but I think it'd be really good for people in education and is um, a program called, it's, it's now called the Spiritual Investor. But if you search it online, it's, it's still under financial story because you just rebranded. So the Spiritual Investor used to be financial story, but her name is Elizabeth Ralph. So she teaches financial intelligence, financial literacy. But I think this is really important because finances are a huge stressor, especially like everything now, the economy, pandemic, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's a huge part of like stress management, self-care, taking care of yourself is getting like a money financial mentor. And she does it in such a way that is like really fun to learn, but also really connected to like emotions and money and your like past belief systems and correcting those. So I'm like, okay, I think that would be a good one to recommend for teachers to dig into for themselves. Cool. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. It was super fun. I loved it. Was it. Very fun. Very fun.